Thank you for tuning in to the Pedagogies for Social Justice podcast, brought to you by a student staff partnership at the University of Westminster. This is a platform for students and educators to exchange knowledge and encourage discussion about the current challenges facing higher education. I'm your host, Kyra, and for this episode, I'll be in conversation with Deanne Bell, a senior lecturer in psychology at Nottingham Trent University, with specialties in liberation psychology and decolonisation. Some of her most recent work focuses on building decolonial atmospheres and developing imaginings of a new university that exists outside of the colonial forms of knowing and being that are still deeply entrenched in the system. In this interview, we delve deeper into Deanne's background, her recent paper on retrospective autoethnography, and how we might begin to decolonize psychology as a discipline. Hi, Deanne. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I've been really looking forward to having you as a guest. How are you doing? It's good to be here with you, Carol, um, and I'm, I'm excited to be joining you on this. Oh. So I thought we could begin the episode with you telling us a little bit more about yourself. So first things first, where are you from? So I'm from Kingston, Jamaica. So I'm from the global south in terms of geography. And politically, I am a decolonialist. And so I'm very interested where I come from um, spiritually and philosophically is very much from a place of wanting and needing to see the world become a space of equality. Mm. And what is your role at Nottingham Trent University? So I'm a senior lecturer in psychology and I'm doing a lot of what my head of department, Phil Banyard, calls pre-decolonial work. Mm -hmm. And I think Phil coined that term um, when I um, would talk with him about what is being called decolonial work in the university that I don't think qualifies for that term. And so pre-decolonial work, I think, is perhaps more accurate Mm. about where we're at stage-wise. You also kind of identify as like a liberation psychologist. Was that kind of always a part of your plan? Gosh, um, well, you know, I came to liberation psychology late in the game. When I say that, I began to study psychology in midlife. And I had a career in finance and international business and I was an entrepreneur prior to that. So I was a petty capitalist, if you want. Um, And so I came to psychology in midlife and I didn't know anything about the field of liberation psychology until I read Franz Fanon's Black Skin, White Mass book. And then I knew what the liberation of being actually is from reading that text and putting it together. Mm. And I wanted to understand it more and be able to contribute to it and it was at that moment of reading Fanon that I then understood that you could put together anti-oppression and psychology and do something with it so liberation psychology for me is a way of using psychological insights to support 
decolonial work, if that makes sense. So what would you say has been kind of the highlight of your career so far? Well, you know, I think I experience many highlights regularly, particularly when I'm teaching, um, teaching liberation psychology, critical community psychology, all from a decolonial perspective. But I think there are two things that um, I feel have been real highlights. One is doing my doctorate, um, my dissertation as it's called in the US because that's where I did it. So when I did my PhD, that was a breakthrough moment for me because that inquiry was actually an act of committing what's called class suicide. So that was actually me speaking out against the racialized and classed structure that had formed and shaped me. But I was also speaking out directly against being produced as a middle-class Jamaican Browning, which is a particular social location. So, so that, that was a highlight um, when I could, for the first time in my life, develop my subjectivity enough to be able to speak against colonial formations. And that was about 10 years ago. But another moment was when students at Antioch College, where I was teaching in the US, when they demanded um, that a psychological program of study be created for them, which was outside of the framework of mainstream psychology. And so I created a what I called a psychosocial studies transformative psychologies program of study for them. And it allowed them to learn theories and praxis that were outside the colonial framework of mainstream psychology. So that's definitely something um, that I will carry with me for the rest of my life as being something deeply meaningful. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. So linking back to your racial identity, you say you identify as a Jamaican woman with African, Indian, Scottish, Irish and English blood. And multiraciality is something I've talked about with other guests on the podcast. And I find myself talking about it when I can, because I feel like it plays such a significant role in not only the construction of our identities, but how we're able to kind of situate ourselves within the decolonial anti-racist and diversity work that we do. And I'm black and Asian, specifically Zambian and Filipino. And I'd say I'm very sure of my racial identity now, but it definitely hasn't always been like that. And I find that a lot of multiracial people feel the same. So my first question for you is, how would you kind of describe your upbringing? Like how was race kind of seen and treated in your household? So such an important question. And I know you know the complexities of providing a single answer to a question like that. Um, so I want to say first and foremost that I was produced as a middle-class browning, yeah? I was thrown into this world and into a family that was middle-class brownings. That's a of course, a social classification, right? That's race plus class put together and rooted in slavery. So 
in Jamaica in 1834, when slavery, the British Empire had decided that um, formal slavery was abolished in Jamaica, it wasn't that all people of color experienced emancipation. It was that at first, planters, and I'm using the terminology that's used historically, planters, concubines, and their mulatto children were given freedom first. African Blacks, and the, this distinguishment is not mine, it's, it's from history. African Blacks were not given emancipation at the same moment. And when Brownings or mulattoes, as it were called, then mulatto children could inherit property and wealth from their white fathers. So you have from the moment of the emancipation of slavery, two different classifications of people, one so-called black, one so-called mulatto. And my family comes from so-called mulatto people. So um, in Jamaica, we're considered brownings. When I'm in Jamaica, if I said I was black for Jamaican people, I could only mean it politically. I could never mean it racially, mm. if that makes sense, because I'm physically different. So mm. yeah, so multi-racialism in Jamaica is very bound up with class and it's very bound up with economics as well, mm. at least historically. How was kind of your multiraciality kind of understood by those around you, like particularly like your peers and I guess your teachers when you reached school? There was a nonverbal expectation that people who are Brownings would excel and exceed within the system. You had the material resources to be able to afford all the tools that people who are learning um, need. You had the ability to afford the books. At the time, um, there was no such thing as Wi-Fi. So there wasn't the issue of affording computers and you know, reliable internet. It was, it was books. And you could also afford extra lessons if you needed them. And you had the ability to learn from multiple resources. And we all know that we learn a lot from art, for example, and we learn a lot from culture. And we definitely learn through being sociable. And so if you have material resources, you have more of those things that allow you to learn or to learn faster or to learn the specific things that the system is testing you on. Hmm. So thinking about, I guess, your own sense of self, what would, what would you say kind of, did you feel like you had to navigate your racial identity or was that something you were always very sure of in yourself? You know, at the time that I grew up, Carol, it was a moment in Jamaica, it was post-colonial. So Jamaica became so-called politically independent from empire, from Britain in 1962. So I was in prep school in the 70s. And, you know, it wasn't the done thing in the social spaces I was in to discuss race. So I think there was this effort to be colorblind and also to be class-bind. 
in the moment that this country, Jamaica, gets going as a so-called independent country, that it is going to lay down colonialism and all the things that go along with colonialism that we now call coloniality because they continue to live in the present. So it was a fiction um, that we wouldn't, and, and a sort of social contract, if you will, that we won't discuss race and class um, openly, much like you have in many spaces in the UK where people just refuse to discuss race and class. But of course, in, in the culture and in conscious reggae music that exploded in that period when I was young, um, that wasn't the case. There were conscious reggae music artists who were speaking about racism and classism, not only in Jamaica, but globally. And so um, there were definitely, and this expression holds that there are two Jamaicas, you know, there, there's mm. Jamaica that doesn't have to contend with race and class because race and class doesn't diminish us. And there's a Jamaica where race and class is brutal. Mm. So speaking kind of, so you say that, you know, there was this kind of um, effort to kind of almost be colorblind and class blind. Did you ever feel like that there was also an element where you were kind of limited to kind of sharing your kind of opinion? And I think in my experience, I used to find myself in a state of turmoil. And I guess I still do to kind of an extent today where I'm very cautious about who and where I speak for or what kind of opinion I get to make about a certain issue, um, even when those groups are a part of me. Was there, did you ever kind of experience that as well? Most definitely. Um, but I don't think I had then the consciousness that you might have um, now or might have had um, earlier on. I, I think um, I didn't start to grapple with my sense of self in terms of social identity until I actually moved to the US because because I was produced as a Browning in Jamaica and that was never questioned. Uh, it was, I first went to the US to finish high school and then do my first degree and went back to Jamaica. And even then I considered myself a Jamaican Browning and that was that. It was when I moved to the US in midlife to live and study psychology. It was when I became a member of that society in that way that I was produced as black. Mm. And so then I experienced this shifting sense of self. That's really interesting. And had the lived, the concrete lived, the concrete lived experience of being produced as a racialized person. That's, I think that lived experience taught me what I've learned from decolonialists about the production of social identity, that, that there's nothing inherently black, brown, white, middle-class, um, gendered about any of us. These are social constructions. Yes, exactly. Thank you for sharing um, that, Deanna.
So your last paper discusses retrospective autoethnography as a methodology for decolonial inquiry and intervention. And you talk about how kind of the sharing of knowledges and experiences can actively undo the hegemonic and colonial forms of knowing and being, and ultimately the research practice itself. And, you know, I loved this paper for a lot of reasons, but I wanted to find out what kind of inspired you to explore autoethnography as a method of resistance and solidarity? Well, I remember I was teaching at University of East London and speaking one Saturday afternoon. I was on my coat speaking with my friend and colleague, Ermi Duta, um, who was in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And both of us were talking about our struggles within the university as people from the global south. Ermi is from India. And and also as women of the global south, and in Armie's case, brown, in my case, black, and not wanting to capitulate to the westernized university, but finding ourselves somehow called into this space to do some work. I said to Ermi, well, why don't we, Ermi has um, longstanding abilities and experiences doing incredible ethnography work. And I said, well, why don't we begin with what we want and think backwards? And so I said, why don't we do re retrospective autoethnography? I didn't even know it was a thing. I later um, Googled it and found that there's a thing. So it was out of a desire to create images or to talk about the creation, the possibility of creating the world as we want it to be, using our self-knowledge to speak about culture and to speak about society. That to me is what the project that we did with Hesica and Hugo is attempting to achieve. It's actually to use what we already know as people within the system, to talk about the system. It's really not to talk about us but we are part of this system and so we want to learn from our experiences about not just the present but about the future. If researchers specifically those racialized as white are to kind of use I guess retrospective autoethnography in their studies of oppressed groups what can they do to kind of ensure that it doesn't just result in more practices of appropriation erasure you also talk about characterization or just kind of reinforcing colonial ideals in general? So I think that question is another really good question. I, I think that the first thing I would encourage anybody to do, regardless of the methodology, but including art ethnography, since you're asking about that in particular, is to take time to develop social ethics to take time to develop social ethical practices and a social ethical consciousness. And I think there are a lot of ways that we can start that journey. One of them is to ask ourselves what is motivating us to ask the questions that we're asking. Another would be who, who do these questions serve? Mm. Another would be, what is the politics of our questioning? And, and that question, I think, is important because there's no such thing as an apolitical question. 
And you know, in mainstream colonial epistemologies where people buy into the fantasy of their work being unbiased or their work being neutral, that is problematic because any effort to consider what we're doing as neutral is really aligning ourselves with the status quo, the colonial status mm -hmm. quo. So I think we have to do a lot of self-interrogation in order to develop uh, consciousness about social ethics. That to me is like imperatively decolonial. I agree. And I think those are really important questions that I think, yeah, like you said, regardless of the methodology, researchers should be asking themselves. And an idea that really resonated with me was this kind of idea of a future in which the new university embraces failure as opposed to the kind of current neoliberal university, which embraces like competition, thinking economically and offering very little room for mistakes to happen. And I just kind of wanted to understand why it was important for that to be kind of highlighted in the paper. Like, have you been in a position where you've had to learn to just kind of value failure? Wow. Um, so if I recall, Hugo in particular raised that issue for us. And I remember Hugo, I hope I'm not um, really messing with the spirit of what he was saying. But what I took from Hugo raising that is that as human beings, we need permission to experiment. We need permission to be creative. And that the experiments and our creativity may not always yield the fruit that we want. But in the westernized university system, given the metrics of excellence that dominate how we're assessed, we're always supposed to hit marks and, and exceed marks. It's almost as if you're running in a hurdle race. You, you have to be able to jump over each and every single hurdle, not touch it at all, never bring it down and reach the end first. And um, that's deeply problematic. I can, to give an example of, um, I hope this kind of touches onto your question, it may not, but I have been encouraged to apply for promotion from a senior lecturer to an associate professor. And so I did, and my application was rejected. And when I look at the criteria for success in the Westernized University. What it says to me is that the kind of work I do is not considered adequate for an associate professor, yet I'm being told that I am operating at a level higher than a senior lecturer. And the criteria for associate professors in the Westernized University boils down, I think, to two things primarily. One is the ability to get significant grants, to bring significant income into the university. And the second is to be able to publish in three and four star journals. These two criteria are connected deeply with the status quo, shoring up the status quo in the 
case of three and four star journals, it's making sure that you speak in status quo language and that the ideas that you play with and that you develop um, are part and pass of the status quo. When it comes to garnering um, significant grants, projects that are decolonial, I, I'm not aware of any decolonial project attracting a million pound grant. I don't think Wellcome Trust, which is one of the largest research funders in the world and certainly significant operation here in the UK, I don't think Wellcome Trust may have financed a single decolonial project in its history. So the system itself is set up to block people who do work like I do. So the system is, is set up to produce what it has produced, which is that, you know, 35 Black females in the UK, the entire UK, the four countries of the UK have 35 Black female professors. Total, not, not Nottingham Trent University or the city of Nottingham, the entire four countries in the United Kingdom. Yeah. So there's, there's a reason for that. And I bumped into that. But when I bumped into that system, the system would throw it back at me as a failure on my part, a failure not to be able to bring in significant income, a failure not to be able to produce in three or four star journals. So failure to me in the westernized university system is almost a badge of honor. It's almost the confirmation that the work that you're doing isn't status quo, if that makes sense. Hmm. No, it does perfectly. And I also wanted to talk about how in the article it's mentioned that imagining can source a world through which learning, discovery, solving and repair is possible. And I wanted to ask you personally, what is an important feature to your own imagined utopian university? Wow, I, I so love that question. Um, thank you for that question. <laughs> If I imagine a future that I would want to see in the westernized university system, I think the experience comes to me as that every human being in the university feels at ease. Mm. Like I can imagine what that would be for every single human being, be it that we're in the classroom, be it that we're walking down the corridor, that we're in the library, that we're in a restaurant, that we're in a meeting, anywhere, that we inhabit our own skin in a way that simply feels at ease that we're never haunted by the meaning of our bodies. Thank you. And on the whole, what would you say you kind of want to see more of in decolonial literature on methodology specifically? Well, Tara, I, I think in decolonial literature, there are people who are attempting to make breaks away from coloniality in the way that, some of us are trying to write. And um, I also see though, that in colonial literature, there are people who are bringing 
colonial patterns into that space. So that I give an example. Recently, I was asked to review a book proposal for a decolonial methodologies text in psychology. And what I saw is that these folks proposing the book are using a colonial framework for the book and then critiquing it. And they're calling that decolonial work. Mm. When you use neoliberal critiques against coloniality, I don't see that as decolonial work. I see that as critiques within a system, but not transformation of the system, if that makes sense. So for me, um, I want to see a break. I, I want to see more of a break in from coloniality, even in decolonial spaces, because I see it um, entering into and in moving through decolonial spaces. Thank you. And I completely agree. And I think with our project as well, we kind of see that this kind of neoliberal capitalist nature of just kind of doing, carrying out educational research in general, like, and I think, yeah, we definitely see that. But I like what you say when you talk about kind of, I guess we're constantly kind of decolonizing decolonial spaces at the same time in that kind of sense. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Thank you. And so I think much. that's just where we are historically. You know that many of us are interested in what decoloniality is, but we're not seeing that our own psyche isn't able to track coloniality. Coloniality yeah. can be a slippery thing, as we all know, yeah. you know? And so mm -hmm. it, it requires a bit of vigilance to be able to assess and analyze its presence. So I wanted to dedicate this last segment to discussing what it means to decolonize psychology and what can be done in terms of our approaches to learning and teaching. And I wanted to ask you first, in what ways is psychology still a kind of colonial discipline? It's very rooted in its colonial history. And it's very, it adheres to its colonial thinking very easily. So it, it doesn't seem to be giving it up um, readily. Um, and, and this is true, I think, on many fronts. On the teaching front, because I know both of us are very interested in pedagogies. Um, on the teaching front, the banking model is still the norm. So the so-called expert, the lecturer stands and controls knowledge um, from the front of the room and delivers the Western canon as universal thinking. That's still true in psychology. It's also still true in psychology that the knowledge that's taught is generally, principally derived from quantitative research. And that's important because that means that we are relying on an empirical method that's concerned with the surface of things, not the depth of things. And we can't get very far with decolonial work looking only at the surface of things. Mm. But 
you know, in psychology, and this is true of the social sciences in general, who the researchers are for our disciplines is very important. So in, psych in the social sciences, Grasfagel tells us that the canon is derived primarily from five countries, the US, UK, France, Italy, and Germany. But it's not simply that those five countries represent approximately 12% of the globe's population. But because the professoriate is primarily male, then what happens is that the knowledge that we get is really through the gaze of the white male. So we're really getting knowledge in the social sciences that's been produced through the thinking, the subjectivity of approximately 6% of the world. Yeah. So to answer, I could, I could answer your question just with that statistic alone, like 6% of the world is producing psychological knowledge and that 6% are white males, that requires decolonization. So linking to kind of, um, kind of higher education, how can psychology lecturers kind of begin to decolonize their pedagogy? And I guess you would speak on this kind of having an intersectional approach in a sense, just coming off your point there. So I think there are a number of starting points um, and, and there are a myriad of starting points. I don't think there's a recipe or a formula for how to decolonize, you know? But I think from what I've seen doing pre-decolonial work in now three universities, so one in the US and two here in the UK, I think the first order of business is to learn what decoloniality actually is. And I noticed a very strenuous effort to avoid coloniality. And, you know, etymologically, decoloniality is against coloniality. So I think the first thing we need to do is to understand coloniality, to know what we're against. But that work seems to, people seem to try to evade that. I think we need to turn and confront it. We also need to deconstruct what and how we teach, which is on the back of the point I was making before, you know, how we teach is important and what we teach. So what are the sources of knowledge that we're teaching from? That's important. Um, and, you know, in that we need, we can turn to critical pedagogy. So for example, Jennifer Fraser, who you know very well at your University of Westminster leads a critical pedagogy group, which as far as I can understand, anybody interested in engaging with critical pedagogy in the UK can join that group. So yeah. it's an incredible resource for four countries in the world to, you know, but teachers need to not only learn and study critical pedagogy, but learn and study decolonial thought and again, what I see in the spaces that I'm in is that I don't see a very rigorous engagement with decolonial thought. So that's another evasion of let's do decoloniality, but let's evade coloniality and let's evade decolonial thought. This doesn't make sense. So I think over time, and, and this is another point that for us as teachers, 
I think we need to understand that becoming decolonial pedagogically is going to take a lot of time and it's going to take a lot of work. And with rigorous engagement though, we can understand what is damaging about colonial pedagogies and then what's damaging about the westernized university and then we can decide for ourselves if we want to continue to participate in that damage thank you Deanne those are some really important and valid points as a question I like to end on what is something you'd like to see develop within higher education in the next 10 years well I think one of the most important things that we could do is actually to lay down the neoliberal framework of addressing inequalities through the EDI agenda, the Equality, Diversity and Inclusion agenda. I think EDI thinking is blocking transformation. You know, it's an, it's an effort, a, a weak effort to tinker at the margins with what is producing the inequalities. It's an effort to make minor changes within the system, but to leave the system intact. And the, this moment, this historical moment calls for transformation, not for tinkering, not for tweaking. And I think if people need a framework to lean on or to help them see what direction we should be going in, instead of EDI, we should be thinking equality, equity, and justice as a framework. Um, that's a framework that would be decolonial in spirit and in philosophy. And, you know, Rashne Limke at University of Scotland, for example, is doing transformative work from a decolonial perspective as she responds to the EDI agenda in higher ed. So it is possible for us to say this is the EDI is a framework that Harrod thinks inequalities can be addressed through. Well, you know what? We can bring, as Rashni is doing, we can bring decoloniality into that as well to make sure that it is not the reproduction of neoliberalism in something that claims it's interested in equality. So that in the next 10 years, if we made that shift, that would be extraordinary. Wow, what a perfect way to kind of end the episode. I just wanted to say thank you again for joining me on the podcast. And it's been so nice getting to know a little bit more about yourself and just having the opportunity to discuss your, you know, your recent work, which continues to inspire us on this project. And I highly recommend both students and educators give that paper a thorough read. So links on where to find the article will be added to, to the description. But yeah, thank you so much for being here, Deanne. Well, thank you for this opportunity to join you and congrats again on the work you're doing. To find out more information, access our tools or get in touch, visit us at blog.westminster.ac.uk slash PSJ.